Live from the Livingston campus of Rutgers University. This is RLC WVPH in Piscataway. 90.3 The Core. Independent community radio from Piscataway High School and Rutgers University. Learn more at thecore.fm. Many voices. One station. This is 90.3 The Core. The notorious Kinbuck Landfill sits on the bank of the Rauchen River in Edison, New Jersey. First up, I spoke with Executive Director of Edison Wetlands Association, Robert Spiegel, about Kinbuck Landfill during its operating days. What caused the EPA to start investigating the landfill? Well, there's a number of things. I think it was on the radar for a long time, and because they didn't really have any other places to dispose of the chemical waste at the time. They actually was, it was a licensed facility. In other words, they sent the waste there. The state of New Jersey did, other states did. And, you know, it's similar to what we're doing now. I mean, New Jersey and other states, including New York, still operate these type of facilities and they still dump chemicals in these type of landfills throughout the state and throughout the country. So, you know, at the time, this was a convenient place to dump. It was an area where, as regulations were getting tighter in the 70s, as the, uh, you know, various federal regulations came into place, the Clean Water Act and other things, this place was still open. And so this was a convenient place for the EPA and the state and the other states to bring their, their toxic waste and dispose of it. And and at the time, it was still legal, right up, but I guess, until, I think they stopped in like 1974 1976 that's when they i guess officially stopped but you know who knows how long they continued to take waste after they were supposedly closed there was a fatality there right an explosion where somebody got burnt bulldozing something uh yeah i read that i read that story as well but i'm sure that there was more than one fatality there you know when you talk to the former workers and people that operated at the landfill you know there was probably much more than one person that was killed as a direct result of, you know, chemicals exploding and, you know, the landfill burned several times and, you know, I went in the videos, you can see the chemical fires and the other 
other things um, that took place on the landfill. But there was also probably, I'm sure, a lot of people that died after the fact and died because of where they worked at the Kimbuck landfill, but they didn't know it at the time. Like I said, this was whatever you wanted to take. You know, they, they mixed and took whatever was available, and the gates never closed at Kimbuck. They operated 24 hours a day, and, you know, they were still taking, you know, all kinds of extremely hazardous waste. And according to the workers there, it was not uncommon for a tank truck to come in, back itself up, and, and then unhook itself, leave the, the tank truck there, and they would bury it in the lagoons and then cover it over. Next, I visited Kinbuck Landfill and received the best tour all the way to the top of the landfill. And I spoke with our EPA Section 2 Chief, Mr. John Prince, about the cover and the ecological remediation of the landfill site. So in this case, there's an area of groundwater that's been damaged by the... This landfill, the the private landfill. landfill. right. And so New Jersey worked out a scheme with the parties responsible for the landfill, Uh whereby I think they paid some money, but they also asked them to do some project that's for the benefit of the area in general, and that might not be a trade-off for groundwater, but might improve something else. And so he was referring to the fact that one of the ecological interests in the area was to create more open space for uh, essentially better habitat for ground-dwelling mammals and avian species. And the whole landfill, they used to cut it. Right, they used to cut it because it's really easy to take care of. They just right. cut the grass short. Right, I can just imagine that you'd be a little nervous of having some things that would puncture the liner. Well, it turns out if they just cut it every couple of years, mm-hmm. they really do end up with being able to take out things like a tree mm-hmm. that might actually damage the liner and still allow for there to be a much more healthy habitat for, say, grouse or rabbit that (laughs) needs a little bit of a hiding place. And this is a much more desirable way to leave the land. Mm -hmm. And so they agreed that even though it costs them a little bit more to maintain the landfill this way, Uh they are willing to pay that additional money because that's part of the settlement. The other thing that parties have done with our agreement is this marsh area we've put some effort into creating that as a more healthy ecosystem that actually that's that's been pretty successful in this portion of kinbuck now i speak with carl from waste management corporation one of the many companies that are responsible for remediation of the kinbuck landfill and he explains about the marshland that is on the site of kinbuck landfill The first remedy was we did 10.3 acres to create a natural environment for the animals and wildlife to come in. That was so successful that when we did the remediation for groundwater, we did 30 acres, which encompasses that tree line all the way out to the river. There's a creek that runs along the edge of the landfill. We did this entire area. And that is wetlands and part of the package that we had to do is we had to do upland and that's why the landfill at one point in time this landfill was cut. Lastly I asked about wildlife that's been seen at Kinbuck Landfill. Both Carl and Glenn, the general manager of Kinbuck Landfill and the water filtration genius, answer my question. Well we've had a number of eagles come through, a lot of hawks We have turkey here, we have coyote, we have fox. We had a fox family here. Yeah, there's been over two sets of pups raised here in the last two years. We have coyote. We had a set of bobo links hanging out in the seeps area, coming and going. Uh, That was about four or five years ago. I haven't really seen them since. Marsh hawks. Mm -hmm. Kestrels. Dozens of them. They like, (laughs) kestrels like tall grasses. Yes. This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum of 90.3 The Core. 
where we discuss issues that are important to Rutgers and the Piscataway community. I'm Chelsea Carter, and this week on Core of the Matter, we are talking about the Rutgers Against Hunger program here at Rutgers University, and I will be discussing that more later. But right now, we're talking with Mary and the Kimball Landfill, and coming up shortly will be the snowfall of last year. So, this is Core of the Matter. Just a reminder, this is Mary for Core of the Matter, reporting on Kinbuck Landfill then and now. Now, I toured the leachate to water treatment plant and really learned a lot. Glenn is our tour guide. He and Billy run the water treatment facility. Settle back. Here we go. Okay, so thinking along the lines of like a stream or a river. Uh-huh. So biologically... We created an environment here where our DO is above four. What's DO? Dissolved oxygen. Okay. Now we're feeding the, the organisms that live in these tanks food in the way of BOD, nitrogen, and a lot of your other constituents that would be in the water. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of anything like, as an example, COD. Again, the pH coming in here is around 6.9, so it's right around neutral. Mm-hmm. So there's a great formula right now to grow a colony of bugs that'll use whatever's in the water, single solid organisms, every like 25 seconds they'll split for them to do their thing. Mm-hmm. So all we're doing is we're taking that water that we've removed the metals mm-hmm. and, and any letting, solids. And you're letting nature. Nature and carbon do the work. Do the work. Again, the volatile organics will get volatilized out. Mm-hmm. Okay. The semi-boas and any, anything else that'll be in the water, nitrogen, stuff like that, are going to get absorbed by the bugs. Mm-hmm. The organisms are going to take them up. So they're going to, it starts over here, splits. We have the ability to work or drop any tank we want whenever we need to. But it splits, and then it works its way through here. It takes up to four days to work its way through here. Right. And here's the beauty, because the question that you're going to ask is, how do you retain the bugs? Right. Do they naturally come in the water? Yes. Okay. A lot of times they're naturally there. Okay. We've also purchased bugs from Maryland labs that are specific for leachate treatment right. or wastewater treatment. Mm-hmm. And I've added them. And now we get the culture going. Right. And then you just got to keep and them they going. Keep, and they keep dividing. Yep, yep. Okay. Unless you really have a really bad situation where you have a freeze or something like that. Generally speaking, they're always going to be in the water. And once you introduce them, they're generally there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you want to increase the the population mm-hmm. because maybe you see a nitrogen that's above what you want it to be in a certain section of the tank right when i start to see nitrogens above like a 10 in this section you i want to add bugs. more bugs i want to lower the flow increase the detention time that type of thing mm-hmm. when the water comes to here this is a clarifier again okay now we're adding carbon right mm-hmm. the bugs are clinging to the carbon because it gives them a place that's like a house like mm-hmm. oh i got a house to hang out in there but what'll happen is the carbon and the bugs will settle out Right. And you saw a bank of pumps there? Mm-hmm. They're called RAS pumps, return activated sludge pumps. There's a line that comes out mm-hmm. and goes over. Then I have a skimmer. The skimmer will skim off any oil or grease there that would have made it through by now. Right. And goes over into there. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is the solids and the bugs settle out to the bottom in a cone. Mm-hmm. We pull them out and, and we put them right back. in the back. Yes. That's right. You throw them back. The hydraulic detention time is about seven and a half days, say. Mm-hmm. But the sludge retention times, 20 plus. 20 plus. I decide. And you know what makes me decide that factor? Go ahead, what? See the foam? Uh-huh. Top of the tank? See how it's white? As it starts to turn to brown, I'm starting to see the bugs are getting old. I want to waste those bugs. And then I'll get the color back. Right. The other thing is I use my mixed liquor suspended solids number. The solids 
that are returning constantly as my number. It's weighted through a lab technique that we do, TSS. 4,500 is the magic number for this plant. Between 2,500 and 4,500, this plant works beautifully. So we still have that section left to go. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go. So far, so good. There's more of the leachate into river water process. Don't worry, there's no test at the end. So the first stage is the physical first stage. stage. First stage, I call it A and B. Uh-huh. Second stage, A and B. Oh, I get it. Then you have clarification after each stage. And as you can see, you see that algae growing in there, the long green algae? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's also telling me that my biological's doing okay. Yeah, yeah, you, you got things living things in like there. That. The biological end of the system here pretty much tells me what's going on. And it's amazing what they'll do. I mean, I'm removing, you know, 70 parts of ammonia right out here. That's amazing. Now, here's where all that waste sludge goes. Right. And due to the fact that our biological's doing enough work, mm -hmm. see all the algae growing in here? Uh -huh. I don't have to waste out of here because this sludge mixes with the sludge from the hydroxide tank, the clarifier. Mm -hmm. We mix this sludge with that sludge. And this sludge is carbon. And this helps the water and it adds other solids to that the metals precip okay okay but we don't generate a lot a real lot of solids so this tank having a biological background i don't mind having the algae in here because that's going to help with my treatment now we head indoors and we are getting closer to the affluence of river water quality water we also hear from john prince and carl from waste management corporation how often do you check this as far as visually, every day. As far as our flow numbers, every day. Mm -hmm. The valves, we mess with when. In the lab, we see, oh, I get a little high on solids, and first we'll just cut back, and, and that'll do that. Okay. So, after clarification, the last unit here, the clarifier, uh -huh. there's a line right here, and it says wastewater. Uh -huh. That's by gravity coming off that, that tank. Flows over here, and now it goes to the sand filters. So the idea of the sand filters is, if any solids were to carry over from the clarification, the sand filters are 18 inches deep. The water spills on top of the sand filters, and any solids will get trapped in the sand. Right. And that's what's happening right now. We're going into a backwash. Right. Because the delta changed and, and built up, and the head was there was enough head there that now we have to do a backwash. Right. So that's what's happening. And right that now. does that automatically. Yep. Runs off the floats. Very nice. Well, the green light's on, so that's a good sign. <laughs> yep. Spills out of the effluent, clean water carries over, mm -hmm. right, into a, what's called a clear well. Mm -hmm. Fills up to here, and then again, gravity, right into here. Fills this tank up. This is our service water pump. What happens is all these pumps have seals on them, and then we have water chemistry that we got to make up because we're adding polymer for wash down. We have seals on them that keeps the contaminated water out of clear water. Got these shafts spinning around. Mm -hmm. Right, so we have to have a media in between that's going to allow them to spin without wearing out. And that's what this is for, as well as wash down, makeup. So that's our tank before our effluent rear chamber. This is our sampler. Every week we grab a sample. Okay. Okay, this is our pH and DO meter. Mm -hmm. Measuring before the end. This is our effluent. Uh huh. And this is what's going back into the rarity. Okay. After all that work coming out of the ground, removing all those contaminants, the metals, mm -hmm. copper, zinc, iron, manganese, as well as removing this out here, the VOAs, semi-VOAs, POD, nitrogen, gives you a pretty good idea what's going on in the system. Mm -hmm. And it takes about eight days for all this to happen once we bring it in, into the building here. But don't forget now, it's stored outside. So we pulled it out of the ground, let it sit in those equalization tanks. And it sits out there for a few days as well. Right. So in a minute here, we're going to have you, since this is your first visit to Kimbuck. You're not making me drink that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like you, but, you know, if it's just river water. <laughs> now what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab a beaker of city water. Okay. So this is a little bit clearer, but this is river water. Yep. They'll test this water. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. If it's not river quality, then what? Cannot discharge. Okay. Yep. You send it around again? You'd have to pump it back to the equalization and start all over. Okay. Yep. They have to meet a permit, mm -hmm. right? The permit says these are all the criteria that you must meet before you can discharge this into the river. And were they to not 
meet the requirements of the permit, they'd have to fix the plant and send that stuff through again. Okay. So I they're get very it. meticulous about that because they don't want to do that because that's money. Yeah. That's right. Money. Yeah. I get we it. We have run this plant for yeah, 16 years. We haven't had any non-compliance okay. uh, with our discharge mm -hmm. because of individuals like Glenn mm -hmm. and Billy. You've been working here for uh, about 17 years. Yeah, it feels like it's yours. Yeah, yeah, yes. It's better than better. It's good. It, it doesn't seem like 17, though. It's, it's come by quick. You have all been so helpful and incredibly informative. I feel like I could work here now. <laughs> <laughs> now we hear from Mr. Robert Spiegel again from the Edison Wetlands Association. Edison Wetlands was very instrumental in getting paths along the river by Kinbook Landfill and across the river by Edgeboro Landfill. This is very interesting. Listen up. We actually worked really hard to get that trail. What the current or what the past thought was was just to continue using the river as a toilet and, you know, put more facilities build it all, fill in all the wetlands, destroy what, what was left of the estuary. And we, uh, we had a different vision, and our vision has been to promote the idea of brownfields to greenfields, which is to take sites that are contaminated, clean them up to the extent that you can clean them up, try to make them as safe as, as possible, and then, you know, have where it's appropriate public access. And that's... But doing that is, we felt, was the only way we were going to build people's, to become advocates for the river, is that people can get on the river. Now, whether they can get on the banks of the river or not, there are an incredible number of people using the river. They, they fish, they water ski, they jet ski, they, they um, swim. And when you look at the actual banks of the river and what's still in some places coming off the, the polluted sites, it, it doesn't mesh with the public access and the public use. So that's why we have been working to clean up a lot of these sites. And the one that you're talking about, the trail, is one that we actually came up with that idea almost 10 years ago. And at the time, they wanted to basically just... Uh, keep filling in the wetlands and then they were looking at putting in golf courses down there in the river and so we talked to the administration at the time and said listen we are not going to let you finish destroying what's down there and putting golf courses in we think that this area is a unique resource the Raritan is the largest river in New Jersey most people don't even know it's in their backyard and if you go down there and you spend you know any amount of time you'll realize that it is very beautiful, despite the fact that you have an area where people, uh, you know, uh, jokingly refer to it as the Valley of the Drums or Valley of the Dumps. You know, that really is a uh, misnomer because the amount of wildlife that has been come back to the river is just mind-boggling. And there is anything that people see in your backyard, anywhere that you go and bird watch, that wildlife doesn't just come and stay in your backyard. That wildlife goes to the rivers. It goes to the estuaries. Any type of fish that people catch down in Sandy Hook and elsewhere, blue claw crabs, this stuff doesn't just live in one area. It goes and it goes to the entire estuary. So the idea that somehow these areas, you know, we could write them off and say, well, they're so polluted, they're so contaminated, we're not going to go there and we're going to stick to this area. And it's almost like, you know, an ostrich with his head in the sand because the blue cork crabs, they go up and they come into the Raritan River to spawn and to mate and then go out into the Raritan Bay and, and people consume them. So, you know, the art concept is cleaning up these areas one at a time and we'll get the river clean at some point. And the trail on the river to get people to go out to the river what we think is a good idea because we made sure that it was clean. We worked with EPA. It took us a long time because they actually, before we could put the trail there, that area had to be cleaned up. Mm -hmm. And there was drums, 55-gallon drums of chemicals that were there that EPA, working together with the responsible parties, peeled back the cap that was along that area and took out all the waste that presented a threat and took those right. drums. So the cap went right to the river. Yeah, uh, the garbage went right to the river. Right. The waste went right to the river. Mm -hmm. EPA went in there and they agreed that they would do this. It took us a while to get them to do it, but we were there when they actually did the work. They did trenching throughout that whole area. How uh, deep? Uh, I guess as deep as the waste went. Mm -hmm. 
And if you look at the plans, you, you know, they show, you'll, you'll see they trench this way, they trench this way, and they demark the areas that were just, you know, garbage and, you know, regular municipal waste, and then they took out anything that was hazardous. Mm-hmm. Then they covered it back over, put a cap on it, and put grass on it, and then sealed it down to the river. When we first got involved, that was all garbage and waste jutting out into the river. And so now that's sealed, and there is a trail there that brings people out along the river. I've been there. I walked yeah. it. And if you see across the river... Yeah, it's and, Edinburgh. Okay, and did you notice that there's also a similar type of mm-hmm. riprap? We also did that because that was also garbage, and we sued Edgeboro, and they were supposed to clean that up 10 years ago. And because of our lawsuit, they did it in like less than a year. They took 10 years, and then after we brought litigation, they said, oh, okay, we'll take care of it, and then they did. And they cleaned up a full mile of riverfront, which, again, was all garbage and solid waste. And is it a perfect solution? No. But, you know, the fact that they sealed it off, that they have it covered and and capped, and there's native vegetation there now, Mm -hmm. where, you know, if you go out there and you walk around, you'll see mature trees that they planted, wetlands that they they restored, all the way around to where the Mary Murray used to be, the boat. And that's a whole mile of riverfront now that's restored. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, is it a perfect solution? No, but it's certainly better than what was there. And one of our next goals is to get Edgeboro closed. The county still uses for solid waste landfill. Your garbage, my garbage, all our garbage still gets dumped on the river. And people don't even realize that they're building this vast mountain of garbage and, and other wastes on the river you know even next to where kimbuck was is still garbage going into the river from the edison landfill so you know we want to bring people out to see the beauty that's on the river and we think that those people once they see the bald eagles that are out there once they see the fish that are spawning and they are it's amazing to see because the river just is alive with peanut bunker and wasp bunker striped bass and all kinds of other fish and birds and you know they see the beauty of it and they realize why it's important to fight for it so that was really one of our main reasons to getting the public access trail open because to that point the only access was the boat basin right that was it Mm -hmm. and you have seven miles of riverfront and 50 feet of access so we feel that the the mound b which is the area you're talking about it's referred to as mound b Mm -hmm. uh, that portion has been remediated when you walk on the trail you're really not even walking on that anyway right you're walking on an area that's elevated along the river's edge that's right okay so you're not really even on the, the area but even that we made sure that the waste that was considered to be hazardous was was removed and that there's a fence along the edge of the trail so to keep people from going on to the Mount B portion. Right. So, you know, I understand just people have concerns and especially when you look and see what was there, but the difference between people that may comment on it and say, you know, have a negative opinion of having people go out to the river, those people, they were never involved with the process, so they don't know what had to have taken place before we were allowed to have that walkway go forward. Our involvement wasn't just, hey, put the walkway out there. We made sure it was safe. You know, I always use the rule of what I go out there with my kids and my family. And a lot of times, a lot of these cleanups, you know, um, they don't pass the sniff test because the regulators and the responsible parties will say, well, it's safe. You know, it's always safe for somebody else. But I use, you know, myself and say, well, if I wouldn't go on it or if I wouldn't bring my kids on it or, you know, my nieces and nephews, then I won't go on it. And with this cleanup and this area, I have feel comfortable knowing that I have no problem with walking on it. And I've, in the other parts of the river, there's some issues, like I said, with the uh, axo-chemical, but not on this section. Thank you, Mr. Spiegel. And I am very grateful for all of the people who I interviewed for this project. My thanks goes to Mr. John Prince, our Section 2 EPA chief, Glenn Grave, water treatment facility, and then Bill Clapp, too, at the water treatment facility. Last summer, in August of 2012, I was thinking about our winter 
and realizing how much we didn't have any snow at all, and it really bugged me. So I went to go talk to a snow expert at Rutgers. Dr. Robinson is a professor of geography, our state climatologist. So nice of him to speak with me. The first question I asked him was how our 2012 snowless winter affected our year last year. Well, we use our winter precipitation to fill our reservoirs because during the summer we extract a lot of water from the reservoirs, and that would be surface reservoirs or even groundwater for uh, lawn watering, gardens, agriculture. So it's not so much that we rely on snowfall as much as just rain and snow during the winter. Even in a snowy winter, less than half of New Jersey's precipitation falls as snow. Uh, And in an average winter, only about 20 or 25 percent of the accumulated moisture we get during the winter is in the form of snow. The rest is rain. Now, that differs as you go to the northern part of the state, the balance changes a little the Catskills even more. And by the time you get up into the Adirondacks, the Greens, and the Whites of New York and New England, uh, there they rely on the winter snowpack to melt and fill the streams and replenish the groundwater come spring. And that's even pales in comparison to what you find out in the mountains, uh, the Rockies, uh, the Sierra Nevada, and the Cascades. I asked Dr. Robinson about 2012 snowfall out west pretty much a a snow drought from coast to coast there Uh, was a little bit more on average in parts of the southwestern U.S. in some of the mountains but for the most part they were pretty low in the snow department in the Rockies and the Sierras last winter. All right and do you think La Nina had something to do with that? La Nina likely did in the eastern United States. Mm -hmm. It, It took the storm track up through the Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes. That tends to put the east coast on the warm side of storms and it also keeps the coastal storms which are our wettest and sometimes whitest storms at bay so we had a very dry january through april it was one of the driest starts of the year on record not just because we didn't get snow we just simply didn't get a lot of storm with the jet stream I noticed that it was up in the Arctic Circle for most of the season. That meant that the cold air can come down to meet the moisture. Have we ever had any other winters like that? Oh, sure. You get winters where the jet stream stays a little further north than usual, up the Canadian border and further north, and that tends to block the incursions of cold air from coming into the northeast. Now, occasionally that pattern was a little disrupted and we get some cold air in here. But more often than not, the cold air stayed north, the mild air stayed to the south. And that part and parcel is why it was so dry, because you get your winter storms when the cold air and the warm air clash. And if they each stayed back in their respective homes the past winter, that cut down on the number of storms. So we've seen this before. We don't have it all figured out there may be a La Nina connection. We saw a pressure pattern in the North Atlantic called the North Atlantic Oscillation that was very different than the previous two winters where we had our fair share of storms and as people may recall, an awful lot of snowfall. There is a lot of polar ice melting. I keep in mind what I learned about Greenland's ice melt and the polar ice, what would you attribute to that? Okay, this is just a what if, but if that polar air stayed up there all winter, why are we seeing so much ice melt? It was a remarkable year for the cryosphere in the Northern Hemisphere. By cryosphere, we mean snow cover, ice sheets, and sea ice. I monitor hemispheric snow cover, and we found that in May and June, was the fastest meltback of snow over the continents we've seen in almost 50 years of satellite data. In July, we had a a very warm episode over the Greenland ice sheet where there were temperatures above freezing, even up 10,000 feet at the highest parts of the Greenland ice sheet. Not unprecedented. They think there may have been a similar episode, I believe it was back in 1889. This one may have exceeded that. Dr. Robinson explained to me how the polar ice melt of 2012 reached its record and then broke the record at the end of August with still four weeks of melting to go. When was the previous record set? At low was sent in 2007 in mid to late September. 
These are remarkable events. What's precipitating them? Well, it was cold in the Arctic last winter, and sea ice was about at its normal extent. However, it has been ravaged by years of record or near record melt, and it's thinner and younger. A lot of the sea ice, a lot of the sea ice in the Arctic, which is multiple feet thick, five, ten, fifteen feet thick, uh, sits on top of the Arctic Ocean. A lot of it used to stay there for multiple years. Maybe seventy percent of the ice up there was several years old. Now, with all the melt we've seen in recent decade, we're down to about twenty percent of its old ice. Eighty percent of it last winter was new ice, which means it's thinner and easier to melt come the next summer. So, despite the cold last winter, despite the rather extensive Coverage of ice, it was thinner ice. So along comes this summer, which has been a very warm summer in the Arctic, a stormy summer in the Arctic, and that's all conspired to melt away the snow earlier, send a, a warm pulse of air over the Greenland ice sheet, and melt away a record amount of sea ice. In analyzing snowfall amounts, what have you noticed that we should know? If we are to prepare for a future,、uh, what should we know now? Yeah, good question. I think there's two parts to that. One is come early in midwinter. We've seen no real change in the amount of snow that's falling and the amount of land covered by snow in the United States across the globe. Uh, what we've really noticed is that the snow is leaving earlier in the spring. This is something I recognized over 20 years ago, and it has continued, not in as monotonic a decrease as we've seen in the sea ice for the most part. Okay. But the springs tend to have had less snow cover, and that will shorten your season. It will melt the snow earlier. And the earlier snow melt means that that water may not be available later into the summer. So there's some concerns there.、Uh, the lack of snow actually helps to warm the atmosphere because you don't have that sun's energy reflecting off the snow going back into space and not heating the earth. And you've got the energy that it takes to melt snow. Well, if there's no snow there, that energy can go to warming the ground and warming the atmosphere. So it's what we call feedback. In the climate system, one hand feeds the other, and back and forth. It's not as if there's no snow because it's warm. It's not necessarily that it's warm it, that there's no snow and it is warm. So it's a chicken and egg kind of、mm -hmm. thing, and. It can vary. We're still trying to understand why this snow pattern is changing, and the models, the climate models that forecast the future, suggest that we're going to see this continue. It's not as if all the ski resorts in the Northeast are closed. Their seasons may be abbreviated, but the bulk of their seasons now are between Christmas and the beginning of March. It's actually possible. That you could see more snow during the heart of the winter in the cold country because you're still going to be below freezing, but a little warmer. And a warmer atmosphere can contain more water than a colder atmosphere. So if you warm it but still keep it below freezing, you might actually increase the amount of snow that falls during the heart、right. of the winter season. It's just you might get fewer storms early and particularly late in the season. This is Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum of ninety point three The Core, where we discuss issues that are important to Rutgers and the Piscataway community. I'm Chelsea Carter, and this week on Core of the Matter, we've been talking about the Kimbuck landfill and the snowfall from last year with Mary, and now we'll be talking with Rutgers Against Hunger with Cat Decker, who is the program coordinator of Rutgers Against Hunger, as well as Shabina Kumar, who is a social work intern. Here's more Core of the Matter. I know that this month is American Heart Month, and I know that the organization is supporting this. Can you elaborate on this month?、Yeah. We partnered with、um, university facilities and Student Life to host a month-long food drive、um, in celebration of American Heart Month. So we've created a marketing poster, which has been distributed in. Buildings across the campus, a number of buildings across the university have raw collection bins within them. So throughout the year, people can donate, you know, at their leisure. But when we do a targeted campaign, there's specific specific marketing material that's created. And for this 
specific food drive, we've asked that people donate heart-healthy foods. So, you know, black beans, kidney beans, brown rice, whole grains to not just collect food, but also raise awareness of the issues of heart disease and really, you know, make sure people are conscious of what they're donating and, you know, are aware that the healthier the food, the better it is for the people who are receiving it. So it seems that Ross supports the Supervan as well. And I know I've seen it a couple of times on campus. I just haven't ever had a chance to really go up to it. So can you tell me about the Supervan? Well, you definitely have to check out the Supervan. It's a mobile food truck that operates on the New Brunswick campus. We have locations on all four campuses, but mainly the Bush campus and the Cook Douglas campus. They're open four days a week, and they serve delicious salads, soups, sandwiches, and every meal that is purchased at the Supervan provides a meal for someone at Elijah's Promise. So you're not only getting a healthy, delicious meal for yourself, you're also providing a meal for someone who wouldn't have the opportunity to enjoy it. So the partnership with the Supervan and Rutgers Against Hunger benefits Elijah's Promise here in New Brunswick. And we're looking to possibly expand the Supervan. And eventually their goal is to have, you know, other Supervans, you know, doing similar work in areas all across the state and eventually across the nation. So it started here at Rutgers. It's been a tremendous success thus far. Great food, great prices, and a great mission. So we definitely encourage anyone and everyone to check out the Supervan on the Bush or Cook Douglas campuses. Have the organization ever thought about having a Supervan where the grease trucks are at and having it like during the night as well? That's when most students tend to eat. <laughs> yeah, the one thing about the Supervan is they're very conscious of not taking business away from other vendors. So they're strategically located in areas where other food options are not necessarily available. Um, so the Bush campus, or they're at the Allison Road bus stop, and there's not much out on the Bush campus. Um, so it's a great location for them. You know, it, it draws more business to them, and again, it doesn't take away from other vendors. And then on the Cook Douglas campus, Campus are located on Nickel Avenue in between two bus stops. So, you know, children, students are, you know, in transit. They're looking for something to eat. It's a quick way for them to stop, grab something, and keep moving. So they're very specific about where they are located and making sure that they're accessible to students while not taking away business from other vendors. So I know that the Rort, R-O-R-T-E Expo has passed as well. So I didn't know what that was about. So I figured you could explain it to me more. The Office of Research Alliances hosted their annual technology expo the week of February 10th. And the event took place on February 13th. And um, as part of it, they asked all of their exhibitors to donate non-perishable food items to Rutgers Against Hunger. Um, and the response was fabulous. We had over 350 pounds of food, peanut butter and beans and pasta and pasta sauce, really um, good food that people are always requesting at food pantries um, that we then in turn took to Five Lowe's Food Pantry right here in New Brunswick. Um, Shabina and I did a delivery on Valentine's Day. Um, and when we went in, the pantry was completely overwhelmed by the generosity of donors. They're shelves were nearly bare and Shabina and I brought the food in we helped load the shelves and they just the pantry just kept reiterating how thankful they were for the donation and how thankful they are for the support that they get from Rutgers Against Hunger and the entire university community they serve over 1,000 people a month Um, a lot of them are children and babies so the food that was donated is going to go so far in helping those people get their daily nutrients. So it's important for us to support a pantry such as Five Loaves, which is literally in our backyard on College Avenue. So partnerships like with the Office of Research Alliance, they're so important and they're critical to the success of Rutgers Against Hunger. Without them, we wouldn't really have the opportunity to be in as many places as we are. And that was spearheaded out of their office. They contacted us and we, you know, gladly accepted the offer to set up a table, provide information, and of course, collect food donations. I know the RU Hunger Games are coming up. Mm -hmm. And could you tell me about those, I think it's two or three days that Mm -hmm. it is? Yeah, we started the RU Hunger Games campaign in November at the start of the men's and women's basketball season. So we've hosted food drives at both men's and women's basketball games. We have two remaining dates left, March 5th, March 4th and March 5th. And 
fans coming into the game are asked to donate non-perishable food items or make a monetary donation to Rutgers Against Hunger. Our last Are You Hunger Games food drive was on February 16th. It was the women's basketball game versus the University of Connecticut. So it was a big game, big crowd, and we collected, you know, there was six full boxes before halftime. So it was a great success. We partner with university, the Department of Athletics to set up that drive. They alert their season ticket holders. Anyone that has a ticket for that particular game, they receive an email. There's in-arena announcements promoting the food drives in advance of the actual date when food will be collected. And it's another just another area for us to get involved and raise awareness and collect donations. I know that the Elijah Promise Volunteer Day is also around the corner. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about how students can get involved or the the day as well? Yeah, our next volunteer shift at Elijah's Promise is scheduled for Saturday, March 9th. We'll be volunteering from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock p.m. And there are positions still available if people are interested in volunteering. They can go on our website, rah.ruckers.edu, and right on the main page of our site is a link um, leading people to the contact information to sign up to participate in that volunteer day. So are there any more events coming up for RA that students should be aware of or students can get involved in? We are starting this spring. We'll launch the third annual Strikeout Hunger Campaign where we partner with minor league baseball teams to Um, host food drives at their stadiums. As of today, we've officially signed on with the Lakewood Blue Claws and the Somerset Patriots to collect food at their stadiums in May. And they offer a nice incentive for anyone that comes to the game and donates food, they'll receive a, a free ticket to a future game. So it's a great way for people to give back and get something in return themselves. We'll also be partnering with the University Bookstore to host a spring fundraiser, and that will start sometime in March. We'll have to get the information on our website, so please be sure to check that frequently. And at checkout, people are encouraged to donate $1 to Rutgers Against Hunger, which we will then donate to a local charity. We hosted a similar fundraiser in the fall and raised over $5,000 for a recipient charity. So it's been a tremendous success, and it's a great partnership that we value and appreciate. So have you ever thought about doing, I guess, a food drive during football games as well? Um, We have done food drives uh, during the football season this past previous two years. We've done it on homecoming weekend. Last year, our numbers were a a little bit lower than they were the previous year, so we're trying to think of ways to really increase the amount of donations, whether it's offering an incentive or maybe looking more towards monetary donations. That's something that we do do, and we're looking to capitalize on the opportunity. We have such a large audience. You know, the stadium holds 50,000 people. If each person just brought one small item with them, I mean, we would have a truckload of food to donate to several pantries. So brainstorming ways to really improve on what we're already doing and, you know, keep the momentum there and remind people that we're there you know maybe it's doing additional dates or whatever it is we're looking to continually grow that partnership with university athletics and also during homecoming weekend we have a great partnership with the department of alumni relations and we host our annual run for raw which is a 5k charity race um, that takes place on the bush campus this past year actually took place the sunday before hurricane sandy but our supporters are so are so tremendous they still turned down and we raised six thousand dollars over six thousand dollars for tony's kitchen which is a soup kitchen in um, essex county new jersey and essex county has the highest percentage of food insecure residents so it was an important way for us to get involved in and support a charity that's in dire need of assistance so it was a great event a great turnout and again very appreciative for the partnerships that we have with various departments here at the university So I know that Dance Marathon is coming up as well. Are you guys collaborating with them as well? Um, That's not something that we have done in the past, but always we're always looking for opportunities to partner with different organizations and different departments it's sort of an easy tie-in just you know we have this event we have this audience let's encourage people to donate you know a can of food or a box of pasta or whatever it is so always we're always looking to explore new opportunities and new partnerships so maybe that's something that we will look to do this spring for sure i know that there's another organization that i've met with before or 
just went to a club meeting. Mm-hmm. I think it's Rutgers Initiative for Promo Culture Education. Okay. And I don't know if you guys are with them or not. I was just, just asking. No, I've never actually heard of them. So mm-hmm. They do. I know they, they're more so about um, organic food and mm-hmm. health awareness, too. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering... Yeah, no, it's not it's not a group that we're aware of, but definitely one that we're interested in learning more about. So yeah, we'll have to look we'll into that. Is there anything else that you would like students to know, Rutgers community to know about RAW and what's going on and how you can, or students can get in contact with yeah. you? Yeah, um, our website is a great resource to check out RAW, rah.rutgers.edu. We update our upcoming events, opportunities to get involved. All of our contact information is available on the website, as well as a list of pantries in every county across the state of New Jersey. So over the summer, if students are at home, they're not near the campus, but they want to stay involved. They can use our our website as a resource to locate pantries or soup kitchens or food banks in their area where they can go and donate their time or make a donation, you know, during the summer when, again, the need is so great and the supply is so small. So it's just important for people to know that hunger is an issue that, you know, isn't just affecting people in other countries it's here it's in the city of new brunswick it's in the state of new jersey and anything that we can do to raise awareness and take action to help people who need it is an important um, part of what our university does and something that everyone should get involved in and records records against hunger is a great program to be a part of and we're always looking for new ideas new members for our student group so definitely our website is a great resource and we encourage people to check it out and get involved the core where we discuss issues that are important to the Rutgers and Piscataway communities. I'm Chelsea Carter, and this week on Core of the Matter, we have been talking about the Kimbrook landfill as well as the snowfall from last year with Mary. And I have been talking with Kat Decker, who is part of the Rutgers Kids Hunger. She is the program coordinator, as well as Shabina Kumar, who is the social work intern there. If you have any questions or comments about Core of the Matter, or if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, you can email us at publicaffairsdirector at thecore.fm. Tune in next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for another episode of Core of the Matter. Thanks for listening tonight. I'm Chelsea Carter, and this has been Core of the Matter. Stay tuned for more great Core Radio is on the way. You've been listening to the Core of the Matter on 90.3 The Core. Opinions expressed on the core of the matter are those of the participants only and not necessarily those of WVPHFM or Rutgers University.